Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Once you undermine that basic faith that people have in their democratic institutions, that things are going to be done in a regular order and the votes will be counted properly and they'll be counted accurately and people will have access to exercise their choices in a free and fair manner. When you undermine the trust in that system, it is very hard to build back up. So I really feel that this is a very fraught time for our democracy. And I feel an obligation to stand up for truth and facts and to make sure that people understand what's real and what's not. That's Ellen Weintraub. She's a commissioner on the U.S. Federal Election Commission, the FEC, where she's served since 2002. This week, we diverge a bit from the usual format of Stay Tuned to bring you a special segment. Before turning to my conversation with FEC Commissioner Ellen Weintraub, I'm joined by my friends Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein. Lisa and Ken have served at the highest levels of government, and their career paths are strikingly similar. Both are alums of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Both headed the DOJ's National Security Division. Both were chief of staff to then-FBI Director Bob Mueller, and both served as assistant to the President on Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. They join me today because they now add another impressive credential to their sterling resume co-host of CAFE's new podcast, United Security. This bi-weekly podcast will be exclusively available for members of the CAFE Insider community. Just as Ann Milgram and I break down politically charged legal matters, Lisa and Ken will be making sense of politically charged national security issues. The podcast launches tomorrow, and for a limited time, you can sign up to listen to the full episode for free at cafe.com slash united. That's cafe.com slash united. If you already receive emails from CAFE, then check your inbox. You'll find the link in the July 10th issue of the CAFE Brief newsletter. And now, my conversation with Lisa and Ken. Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, it's good to be with you. Thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Great to be here with you, Preet. You guys doing okay? Doing great. All good. I'm very excited. I don't know if you can tell from my voice how excited I am that that we're launching this thing. We've been talking about it for a long time. Perhaps we can begin with a with a legal issue, and maybe you can specify the statute because you guys are so smart when it comes to the law. Where is it written in federal law that former high-ranking government officials are required to start a podcast? 
I think it's, it is there, right? It, it's absolutely there, and there was a pre a, a addendum, as I recall, a pre amendment. <laughs> yeah, I just took that? it at face value when you were you had my arm behind my back and telling me that I had to do a podcast that there was something in the law. You believe in the rule of law. I appreciate that about you, Ken. <laughs> so why? So so how were you able to be persuaded to do this podcast about national security and and at this time? Well, Preet, I'd like to wax on about your persuasive powers. <laughs> Please do. But instead, I'm going to say that I was really convinced to do this because I wanted to spend more time with my friend Ken. Nice. Ken, yeah. return the compliment. And likewise. <laughs> absolutely. Though I, I will not bypass the pre-persuasive powers because I, I said somewhat jokingly that you had my arm behind my back. That wasn't a complete joke. I remember being at a conference with you a few months back, actually nine months now, and uh, you did have me cornered in the corner of a bar and were, uh, <laughs> were threatening to cut off my, my drink tab unless I agreed to do your podcast. And, and you're a very smart man. And, very um, <laughs> but, I, but look, I don't know that I wanted to do a podcast for the sake of doing a podcast, but the opportunity to do it with Lisa and work with you and your incredible team, but also to do it in a context and in a way that, you know, is, is showing what does and should unify us more than what and does unfortunately divide us these days was, uh, that was pretty appealing. And it, uh, that seems to be the way it's played out. And um, I'm excited to be a part of it. You know, further to that, we spent some time figuring out what the title should be. And your podcast about national security is entitled United Security. You want to talk a little bit about why you guys arrived at that? And it's, I guess, further to what you were saying. Well, I'll chime in here. I think Ken and I both wrestled with a number of different potential titles, and we knew we wanted to hit upon the theme of unity and the need to have unity in particular on national security issues. I know for me, and here, Preet, I'll, I'll kind of play to your noted affection for words. When I was thinking about, you know, what should the title of this be? The phrase United Security seemed to make a lot of sense because if you think about it, uh, and if you look at the dictionary, United is about joining for a common purpose. And I think Ken and I, Ken will speak for himself, but I think Ken and I both felt like we've kind of lost something in the discourse these days when it comes to national security issues. And we're, we're losing a lot of kind of reasoned debate. And there's too much shrillness in the debate these days. And it seems like we need more space for a kind of reasoned discussion of complex issues and trying to find some common ground on them. Yeah, and I'd, I'd concur with that completely. And, and look, there's the old saw that politics should stop at the water's edge. And look, none of us is naive and is going to think that national security matters. There's nothing political about national security matters. But there really is a reason why we should believe and, and demand of our leaders and government officials that, you know, as best they can, when you're talking about securing America against overseas adversaries and threats, we really should be united. And there might be difference in the way we perceive the means to protect our country, but the principles, the underlying principles are the same and we all share them. And so we really ought to be able to talk about these issues in a sort of nonpartisan a non-adversarial way. And that just doesn't seem to be the case these days. And this is our small effort to try to recover that notion and put it into practice. 
So you guys aren't going to scream at each other every week? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we might do a little bit of screaming at each other, but probably not that much. I mean, look, the other thing is we want to give folks a window into some of the common experiences Ken and I had in our prior roles that we've had, right? We had parallel jobs in different administrations, but very similar experiences when it comes to trying to think about what it takes to secure the United States, what it takes to speak rationally and from a fact-based perspective about these issues. And so there was, we've got a lot in common that I think we want to share with folks. You've both been all, in all the same rooms. Indeed. <laughs> in the same skiff. So, so, what do you, so what do you think are the major national security issues that you'll be talking about and that America will be focused on in the coming months? Well, I'll go ahead and start. Look, I mean, one of them is what we've just been talking about, political division and, you know, the politicization of national security and the impact it's had on our ability to actually project our interests overseas and to secure ourselves against external threats. That's a big issue. And, you know, we've seen it play out. And look, this isn't about casting blame against one party or another or against one elected official or another, but it's about sort of calling out the situation that we're in, seeing the impact it's having on our policies, on our institutions. You know, right now the intelligence community is sort of under assault and the impact that's having and it's having on our readiness to address our uh, intelligence needs, this kind of thing. And so that's that's one of the issues that we're going to be dealing with. And I think that's actually, unfortunately, a constant throughout sort of all the various policies that we discuss. That politicization backdrop is going to be there, and we're going to try to get beyond that and really do an identification and a balancing of the policy interests in each of these situations that we see, whether it's the U.S. and Russia relationship, whether it's how to ensure election security and the like. So that's going to be a constant refrain. I think we also want to make sure that we don't take our eye off the ball both in the things that Ken and I are discussing and, and the issues we want to discuss with, with listeners and whether fielding questions and the like, because there's so much these days in the news that is driven by the latest tweet or the latest outrage. And I think Ken and I both worry that we're sometimes missing a discussion of some really important issues that are getting drowned out in the daily discord. Yeah, look, it's also the case Ann Milgram and I, our friend Ann and I, have this experience when we do the the Cafe Insider podcast. You read about a story on the air that it gets three minutes of of attention on a cable news, and no one ever goes deep and explains it. You know, you, you never get anybody who had the experience like you guys have had to go deep. And I think national security issues sometimes, I mean, they're complicated for me. I'm very excited about this because I'm hoping to learn a lot from you guys personally, myself, and I think a lot of other folks will too. So there's there's an explanation an explainer function in this too. You'll hear a news flash that, you know, there was an attack on Soleimani, for example, from some months ago. And, and a lot of the discussion you see is very superficial, or you get a lot of politicians who are currently involved in, you know, trying to win re-election who have a particular talking point they want to get across. But you, you don't often have sort of arm's length, dispassionate discussion on the part of people who have been in the position to make those decisions before talking about this stuff. So I'm looking forward to hearing you guys explain a lot of stuff that I don't fully understand. I think we want to we want to do the explaining and we also want to get past the point counterpoint, right? Do more than the 30 second soundbite 
and every national security issue that and foreign policy issue that makes a headline these days or creates a pop-up on your phone really needs, I think, both the explainer function and to get beyond the, the partisan talking points. Do you guys have a view of what the, the greatest threat, and, we can, and I'm wondering if you agree on it or not, the greatest national security threat we should be concerned about in the coming months and years? At some level, I think it is our dysfunction and paralysis, our inability to come together on issues to get beyond the politics, the divisiveness. At some level, I think that poses a really significant threat to our ability to respond in a way that is going to to secure us. And you can look at some of the issues with the coronavirus response as a really good example of that. Yeah. And just sort of a sub answer to that is process matters. And not to sound too wonkish, but it really does, especially in the national security space. So whether it's COVID and the process that's in place to deal with a COVID situation at its very onset, or a you know a bounty situation with the, the Russians, is there a process in place, the interagency process in the federal government, which is sort of a well-oiled, should be a well-oiled machine for taking incoming threats like that, making sure that all the players throughout the federal government and if necessary, state and local governments are at the table bringing to bear all the resources and assets they have and coming up with a good, sound decision-making process that results in an action plan, is that in place? And are the right people in place? And what would have happened when Lisa and I were involved in the interagency process in our respective administrations? And how did that work or not work? And um, you know, what lessons would we draw from our experience that could be applied to the threats and crises of today? You guys have both had incredibly important jobs, stressful jobs, a lot of the, par- the, same, the same jobs. I was just thinking before we came on and started taping, Ken, I think I actually met you when you were the U.S. attorney in D.C. and had been nominated to be the first head of the National Security Division, you know, subdivision of the Department of Justice that was called for by the 9-11 Commission and talked to you a lot during your confirmation process. And then, Lisa, you became the National Security Division chief a few years later, the first woman to hold that role. And then you've had other roles that it would take me the entire time we have together to go through your resumes. The weird thing is it's so parallel. You guys, did you guys meet in a prior life? Are you related in any way? And then, and my real question is for each of you, has any one of those particular jobs you've had in national security or in law enforcement, do any one of those jobs inform you or inform your views and how you go about addressing national security issues more than any other? First of all, I joke that because I'm a lot shorter, I'm kind of the mini-me version of Ken Weinstein. So I don't know if he takes that as a compliment or or not. <laughs> um, but look, for me, there's a thread that runs through all the jobs that I slash Ken and I have had. And this sense of needing to balance both the responsibility of government to respond to threats, how you talk about those issues, how that in and of itself becomes an issue of security. So for instance, we both spent the majority of our careers in the Department of Justice, which has a real ethos about not talking outside of the particular court documents that maybe you were engaged in. When I went down to the White House, it was a very different approach, right? And I learned I had to talk about security issues publicly and that that was as much a part of the Homeland Security Enterprise 
as the kind of operational aspects of it. And so the responsibility of government to actually address the public's fears about their security is a thread that I think has run through all the jobs that I and we have had. Yeah, one thing that will probably resonate with you, Preet, is, um, you know, we're all prosecutors. And one thing you have to do as a prosecutor is, you know, your job is to put together cases and prosecute, hopefully effectively, and secure convictions. But your job's also to be looking sort of 360 at an issue and make sure that due process is being protected, that the defendant's rights are being adhered to, et cetera, which I think is good training, you know, and we all do that to a greater or lesser degree. But it's good training because it makes you then look at issues sort of from all sides. And I don't pretend to be more open-minded than the next person, but it was good training for us to then import into our national security experience. And I think we all post 9-11 in our own way went from being prosecutors to sort of moving over to the national security space. So at least for Lisa and I, we both headed up the, the Homeland Security Council. I mean, our job was to get all the people who, all the cabinet officers and others who had a role in a particular national security issue around the table, talk about how to deal with the issue, what the plan of action should be, and try to see it from every agency's perspective. And that's hard to do, but that was that was our job. And so I think if there's one thing when talking about sort of our common experience between Lisa and me, it's that, that we've sort of, we've tried to, tried to do that. And once again, sometimes failed, sometimes succeeded, but it, it helps. And I think it's also sort of helpful in now being on the outside, watching some of the national security issues as they play out within the government. Is there anything you expect to disagree on? You know, I think Ken and I have a similar philosophy about the role of public service, the role of government in providing security for the country and for the people. But I think we might differ in the relative responsibilities of institutions, right? We might see some differences there as to how much power government should have versus the individual. You know, where should the private sector come in and take some more responsibility, maybe on some privacy issues at the margins? But overall, I think our philosophy is similar. But I don't know, maybe this is the first first opportunity for Ken to disagree with me. Yeah, disagree on something. <laughs> Yeah, look, we we talk things through as fellow podcasters, but also as friends and have done so for years, and we take a different angle to each issue. I think, though, at least is right, we sort of look at the principles the same way, so we have a lot more common ground than uncommon ground. But, you know, our sort of the maybe the solutions that we bring to bear might differ in degree. Also, don't underestimate the value of experience. And we each, even though we've had almost identical jobs, We've dealt with different crises, different situations, and every one of those sort of gives you an understanding of the extenuating circumstances of that kind of issue. So, you know, Lisa, as soon as she got in an office, had to deal with the Boston bombing and all the peculiarities of that. So when she sees something like that now, she's going to sort of be able to draw on those experiences in a way that maybe I can't, or she dealt with Ebola. And so I think her COVID observations are particularly valuable because she went through that in a way I didn't. And I dealt with other situations. So I think that we do see things differently, though, when you peel it away, it's often not because we have different values or principles, but maybe we've often had different experiences that inform the uh, policy prescriptions we come up with, you know, as we address issues. Let me ask you guys a, a simple yes or no question to see if you agree or disagree. Should a president of the United States read the president's daily brief? Emphatically, yes. 
<laughs> Ken? Yeah. Uh, one of the first responsibilities of being president. That was easy. <laughs> you don't have to spend a lot of time on that on the podcast. Yeah. So the first episode of United Security will be available tomorrow, Friday. You want to give us a preview of the kinds of things that we'll be hearing about? Well, look, I think people who uh, tune into the podcast should expect to hear us discuss the latest issues about the Russian bounty story, right? This is the discussion about intelligence that was provided to the president in his daily brief about a Russian plot to put bounties on U.S. service members in Afghanistan and hear us talk about what does it mean for a president to get that kind of information in the president's daily brief? How did Ken and I, both who are recipients of that intelligence product every morning, how did we deal with that? What are the types of things that should happen when a president gets that type of information? What's the decision-making that goes on or should go on after receiving something like that? And then we'll talk about what's the latest uh, in the news about the coronavirus, the latest developments in coronavirus, what that means for people going back to school, going back to work. What does it mean for the challenges we're going to face for the next couple of months? Because there's, there's a lot of new developments in, in that, both on the science and on the policy front. Yeah, and I think we'll also touch on the whole Bolton book issue and not the kiss and tell sort of anecdotes that it lays out. There's Have you read it? about that in the press. Um, you know, I've read bits of it, but I've not read it. I will admit to not having gotten to it yet. But what is an interesting sort of backstory is just the the fact of it. The fact that you have the National Security Advisor and he's putting out a book within a fairly short time after departing office. And the issue that raises at the intersection of his First Amendment rights to tell his story and the government's need to protect national security information and secrets and how that issue plays out with the pre-publication review process that is now a matter of litigation and why there is such a process and sort of how it evolved. It actually is, uh, it sounds a little wonkish, but it's actually sort of a fascinating case study in the balancing of First Amendment issues, of First Amendment interests, and, you know, the absolute imperative to protect government secrets. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I just got to say, as I said at the beginning, I'm very excited about this. We've all been friends for years and years. And so it's nice to be working with you again in this capacity. So to everyone else who's listening, make sure you check out the new podcast, United Security. It'll be published Friday morning. And as always, you can write to us, including to Ken and Lisa, at letters at cafe.com with any thoughts and questions. Lisa Ken. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks, Pete. There's more coming up. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, Never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. 
Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash Preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Ellen Weintraub has served as a commissioner on the Federal Election Commission since 2002. In her tenure at the FEC, she's been the chair three times, most recently in 2019. Weintraub is an outspoken advocate for campaign finance reform and has developed quite the powerful Twitter presence, including a recent 66-tweet thread about the security of absentee ballots, refuting President Trump's claims of mail-in voter fraud. As we approach the election this November, there's one thing that we can count on, and that's uncertainty. That's why there's never been a better time to have Ellen Weintraub on the show with me today. Commissioner Ellen Weintraub, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Uh, how are you? You're doing okay? I'm doing fine. My family is safe and healthy, and really, there's no complaints beyond that. So we're going to get into some of this in a moment, but you sometimes get criticized and get in trouble for speaking your mind. Are you? Are you going to get in trouble for being on this podcast? Um, possibly. I suppose it depends on where the conversation goes. All right. But well, that's good. That's good. I like that. Only if it's good trouble, though. So that'd be okay. Good trouble. I think John Lewis would talk about good trouble. Yes. All right. So you are a commissioner of the Federal Election Commission, the FEC. So can we start with some basics? Sure. What does the FEC do? What are its powers? What's the purpose? The Federal Election Commission was set up uh, in the wake of Watergate, for people who still remember back that far, uh, to follow the money. That was our primary purpose, was to administer and enforce the laws governing federal campaign finance and make sure that the public is informed about where the money's coming from and where the money's going, make sure that the limits and source restrictions are obeyed. Disclosure is our is our core mission, but we're also a law enforcement agency. We issue advisory opinions. We provide advice to um, anybody who wants advice on how the law works. We issue rulemakings. We also have um, semi-adjudicative function. We do enforcement actions. Our lawyers will investigate complaints. Anybody can file a complaint and our lawyers will take a look at it. And if there are four votes on the commission to investigate, then we can do an investigation. 
There are uh, six, supposed to be six members of the commission. By law, no more than three can be of any one political party. So all decisions have to be bipartisan. It requires four votes to make most major decisions at the FEC, and that is regardless of how many commissioners there are. So uh, even if there are an odd number of commissioners, you still need the same bipartisan four-vote majority in order to get anything done. And do you keep, does the FEC keep databases on campaign finance spending? Is that you guys too? Yes, yes. All of the information that you know, everything that you read about how much money is being raised and spent by federal candidates, super PACs, political parties, all of that information comes from our database. People report to us, the committees report to us, we put it up on the web, and then journalists and analysts and the general public can get access to it. When the agency was first instituted back in the 1970s. People had to come into our public records room to find this data out, but now anybody can access it on their computer at uh, fec.gov. So how, how big is the staff? That seems like a big administrative undertaking, no? Well, uh, we have, I think right now we have about 315. It has uh, varied over the years from uh, that I've been there between the low 300s to the high 300s. And how do commissioners get appointed? Nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. But there's a there's a tradition of there being usually I know that's fallen by the wayside from time to time of a Democrat and a Republican pair being appointed at the same time. Is that true? That is the way it used to work. <laughs> it hasn't been working that way of late. And of course, right now we uh, don't have a quorum. We only have three commissioners right now. We had only three commissioners for about nine months. And then about a month ago, a fourth commissioner was appointed and uh, everybody was very excited to get back to work and get our job done. And uh, then just uh, last week, another commissioner decided to leave. So now we're down to three again. There's been a nomination, I believe, or actually, I think that it's just been an intent to nominate at this point. I don't think there's been a formal nomination right. yet of the fourth commissioner. So, but, so when you don't have a quorum, when it's only three of you, do you just play golf? Do you report for duty? <laughs> <laughs> I well, mean, I what don't. do you do? <laughs> I don't. Um, well, it, there's still a small federal agency to run. So there are still, you know, budgetary and personnel and all those kinds of uh, management decisions that have to be made for uh, for any organization. But our staff continue to do their jobs, uh, which means that we continue to get reports from our staff with recommendations on uh, how to proceed in enforcement matters, in audits, in how we should uh, think about advisory opinion requests that might be pending. And uh, I keep reading those documents and, and okay, preparing good. to deal with them <laughs> when <laughs> right. we get a quorum. So t- take us through like an example, you know, a simple garden variety example of a, a breaking of a federal election law that your commission would address. So for example, if a candidate for Congress, uh, it becomes known that that candidate has raised from an individual way more than the maximum allowed and it comes to the attention of the FEC, what happens? Okay, so that could come to our attention one of two ways. One, they might not know what the contribution limits are, and so they might report that on their regular uh, report to the commission, and our analysts would pick that up and send out a request for additional information, say, hey, <laughs> looks like that's an excessive contribution. Did you know that? Does, does that uh, happen? Wait a minute. Does that does that happen? There's somebody does. who's running for Congress and actually reports the illegal contribution? yes. Yes, it does wow. happen. Can you tell us, is any, anybody we know? Well, <laughs> 
don't want to talk about specifics, but um, okay. yes, it, it's, it's and it's often less experienced candidates um, who may be running for the first time. And uh, maybe they read something about Citizens United and they thought all the limits were gone. And so they could accept anything they right. wanted. Oh, we're going to get to we're going to get to Citizens United. Too. Yeah, so I mean, we, can you remind everyone what are, what are the, the federal limits? Uh, right now, it's uh, $2,800. Uh, any person can give up to $2,800 per candidate per election. So $2,800 for the primary, $2,800 for the general. It's $5,000 to a um, traditional PAC, which makes contributions, uh, and it's unlimited to a super PAC. Got it. Okay, so what's the second way you might find out about a campaign finance violation like that? Somebody might file a complaint. That's the actually uh, most of our enforcement docket comes from complaints. As I said, anybody can file a complaint with the FEC. It has to be notarized. Uh, it helps if there's some information attached to it. If it's uh, too speculative, then there's not much we can do with that and it'll probably get rejected. Then it goes to our lawyers. The complaints go to our lawyers and they take a look at it and uh, we'll write up a uh, what we call a first general counsel's report which goes to the commission with a recommendation from the lawyers that either says we should dismiss this, we should investigate this, or based on the complaint and the response, because we always give the um, person who's being complained about an opportunity to respond, based on all the information, we can already tell the law has been violated, so let's just go straight to settlement negotiations, what we call conciliation. And that happens sometimes too. And then let's say the determination is made that it was an intentional violation of the rule, what what do you do about it? Well, uh, as I said, it takes four votes to do anything. Uh, and then we might investigate if we feel that we need more facts. Uh, we have subpoena authority. We have lawyers. We have auditors. We have investigators. Uh, we have a lot of skilled people at finding facts. Or as I said, if, if it's completely clear from the get-go that the law was violated, then we might go um, uh, straight into negotiating. The conciliation agreements usually have a recitation of the law and the facts, and often people will acknowledge that they violated the law. Sometimes they will insert what we call contention language, where they say, well, respondents contend that they didn't realize they were violating the law. Most most violations are not intentional. Uh, we do so that, get that's some. That's good to hear. Yes, yes, we do get some. But Do you make referrals to the Department of Justice? Yes. If it's knowing and willful, that comes at a slightly later stage of the proceedings. If we find probable cause to believe that the law was been violated, we can then make a referral to the Department of Justice. And sometimes we'll just send something over there. We'll decide it's more appropriate for them than for us. Sometimes they send things to us because they've say, well, there's no criminal violation here, but there might be a civil violation. We have exclusive civil enforcement authority. Do you need four votes just to make a referral? Yes. Is there anything you guys can do without four? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just trying to get a sense of, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what, what your week is going to look like with only three. Well, uh, other than having formal meetings of the commission, uh, my week doesn't look that much different uh, with or without a quorum because the the bread and butter of my day is I get uh, recommendations from staff uh, as to what the commission ought to do. And then I will read those and review them and dig into the law with my own personal staff and try and figure out if I agree with the, what our lawyers are suggesting or not, uh, or if I want to make suggestions for changes. Uh, I'll, I'm still thinking about rulemakings that we could do and planning for uh, when we will have a quorum again, which I hope won't be another nine months that we go without a quorum. But I, I can do a lot of work in anticipation of the final decision uh, so that once we get a quorum, 
Obviously, the new commissioner will have to get up to speed, but if the rest of us already know what we want to do, that'll really help expedite matters once the quorum is restored. So even when you have a quorum, let's say you have all six, which is, I guess, a privilege in recent history, how do you folks get along? How how functional is the FEC? Because I think some people sometimes suggest it is it doesn't work perfectly. Uh, I would be one of those person, persons who would say it doesn't work perfectly. Um, and it's not a question of getting along. I mean, I get along just fine with everybody. But the commission, as an evenly divided body, it's not surprising that as Washington has become more polarized, that polarization has really uh, played out in a non-productive way at the FEC. When I first started at the commission, there was a lot of effort that went into trying to find agreement, trying to find four votes for a particular proposition, just so we could clarify the law, answer people's questions, make sure people knew what the rules of the road were and make it clear when the when those rules had been broken. And many times the results were not results that any individual commissioner might think was perfect, but Uh, It was close enough to form a four-vote consensus on something that four commissioners thought they could live with for the sake of answering questions and and clarifying the law. But starting in 2008, we got a, uh, there was major turnover on the commission, and the new commissioners were more uh, ideological than the previous batch of commissioners, and it became just a lot harder to find that common space. And I would have to say, I did not see as much interest in, um, in, in people finding that, that common ground. One would think that the commission was just set up for constant gridlock with a 3-3 balance. But the truth is that for most of the commission's existence, split votes were fairly unusual. It happened between one and 3% of the time. That's it. The rest of the time, we found a way, the commissioners found a way to move forward. And how but often does it happen more recently? Now, I mean, different people have come up with different uh, ways of counting it, but it's more on the order of 25, 30%. And they're the most important cases. They're the most, um, you know, it's it's easy to agree on cases that obviously don't present uh, any infractions and we can all agree that this should be dismissed. It's harder when... The issues are more complicated, and some commissioners believe that a vigorously enforced set of campaign finance laws will intrude on people's First Amendment rights, will intrude on their ability to raise and spend money and therefore to get their political message out. And other commissioners believe that we do have still some limits in the law, and they're designed to prevent corruption that very large contributions, as the Supreme Court has held, have the inherent risk of of corruption. And uh, we need to make sure that those rules and laws and lines are are obeyed and that the public is informed about where money is coming from and that we don't allow dark money to flourish in our system so that people can't really tell who's pulling the levers of power and who has influence and who doesn't. This is all important information for the voters to know. Is that difference of opinion and difference in perspective, does that fall along party lines generally? It does. It falls very neatly along party lines. With, with the exception possibly of the late Senator McCain. Well, I mean, I'm only talking about commissioners at the FEC. So there, there are Republicans who actually do believe in campaign finance regulation, but they're just not commissioners at the FEC. 
do elected members of Congress and other officials, elected officials, want the FEC as a general matter to be robust or not? That's hard to say. Am I going to get you in trouble? Is this, a, no, is this one of I those mean, questions? I don't want to. I don't want to speak for for other people. I don't want to try and get into other people's heads. But the um, my colleagues would say that they have a strong ideological concern about protecting people's First Amendment rights. I also care about protecting people's First Amendment rights. But I think there are some laws that have been upheld as constitutional, even by a Supreme Court that's not terribly friendly to campaign finance regulation and that we need to abide by them. And it depends on the issue. There are some issues where we find more common ground on. And again, with new commissioners coming on board, everything's up in the air. I I don't really have a good feel for um, where their lines are going to be. But uh, I can say over the past number of years, we've had a little bit more success on issues involving uh, foreign national allegations, allegations that foreign nationals are spending money in our elections. That's something that I think is of general concern. The commission has agreed to prioritize those kinds of complaints. We haven't agreed on all of them, but we've agreed on more of them than we do in other areas. When it comes to issues like whether a 501c4 organization has crossed the line and is uh, not no longer engaged in issue advocacy, but is really set up for the major purpose of trying to influence the election and therefore should be reporting to the FEC and disclosing their donors, we seldom agree on that. We seldom agree on cases alleging coordination between super PACs and outside spending groups and candidates. You know, there are just some issues that we almost never find common ground on. On the issue of coordination, why would that be a divergence point? (laughs) I don't know. It seems obvious to me that some of these groups are coordinating. So I don't know why we can't find agreement on that. So you said before that, you know, people do get along. And and maybe that was not the right way for me to phrase it. But I, I have found it unusual that there are members of the FEC from time to time, and you're one of them, who make public remarks criticizing other members of the commission. You did that at one point when Don McGahn, your former colleague, was about to become White House counsel. The most recent chair, Carolyn Hunter, made a lot of remarks critical of you. Is there something odd about that? I mean, even on the Supreme Court, which is obviously a different kind of institution, the various members can be scathing with respect to the other people's opinions in their written decisions but you don't see this sort of public criticism of their colleagues. Do you Do you have a comment on that? Well, I think it's really just an extension of the statements. I mean, people, not that many people read our statements. You should, if you read the statements, then you would see there's a, there's a lot of criticism back and forth on both sides. Uh, I think that from my perspective, I've been very frustrated that we can't agree on some issues that I think really are fairly obvious. I mean, to take the issue of coordination where you said, well, why can't you agree on that? Well, we've had we've had outside groups that are set up, established by close friends, relatives, parents, siblings of the candidate or former staff people of the candidate. Uh, they are taking um, video off of the candidate's website. They're sending messages to each other uh, on Twitter. We've we've seen all sorts of bizarre formulations uh, that in anybody's common sense interpretation of what's going on, people would say, well, of course, that's coordinated. We actually had an advisory opinion where somebody came in and said, well, you have these rules that interpret what the statutory ban on coordination means, and there are stricter rules within certain time limits. So if I back myself up before those time limits, 
can I coordinate then? And I mean, he basically said it in the question. I'm going to coordinate it. I'm just going to do it outside the time limits. And half of the commission said, well, that still sounds like coordination, which the statute prohibits. Yes, the regulation provides more detail, but the statute still prohibits coordination, which you have told us you're going to do. So we said, yes, that's coordination. And our colleagues on the other side of the table said, no, it's not. They can use the way the rules are written to coordinate to their heart's content. So (laughs) that's very frustrating. I will tell you from a former prosecutor's perspective, the idea of being able to prove coordination and how to know when people are coordinating, to me, seems almost impossible without subpoena power, without wiretaps, without getting people's electronic communications. When you have someone setting up what is a, you know, purports to be an independent pack or something else, and it's a close friend or a relative, it just seems to me, maybe I'm very cynical about this, it seems very easy for people to take a walk in the park and coordinate all day long. And in no way would an agency like yours be able to find out about it. So it seems like an exercise in in trust that maybe is not warranted in this area. Well, what you're suggesting is that it would be happening, but the agency wouldn't be able to prove it. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, is, that's my cynical view <laughs> right. about how people conduct themselves. And particularly, you know, given our experience with, with corruption in New York, it, it seems to me it's a very difficult thing to prove coordination. And when you get the kinds of things that you're talking about, which would be unusual because if people were, you know, you can very intelligently hide your hide your coordination, it seems to me. And when they're not even capable of doing that, that's pretty decent common sense evidence that it is coordination. Well, as I said, in, in this case, they basically came in and told us that they were going to coordinate. So, I mean, are we supposed to ignore that? The other aspect of this is there's an initial determination as to whether we're even going to investigate. And Yes, it might be difficult to prove some of these allegations, but then does that mean that you throw your hands up at the beginning and say, well, we're not even going to try, we're not even going to investigate, because we can't get the four votes to even launch an investigation in most of these cases. This four-vote thing, we should rethink that. There has been some interesting thinking on that. There is a proposal, which I think would be a great idea, that the presumption should be switched that rather than it taking four votes to start an investigation, that it should uh, require four votes to block an investigation if the professional nonpartisan staff thought one was warranted, that they could go ahead and do that. And also, it seems to me, and I haven't studied extensively how other commissions work, but it seems to me that four votes, which is a majority if you have all six, makes sense for certain final determinations. But for other things like the commencement of an investigation or things that, are, that fall short of a final determination, you could do that on a fewer number of votes. And that's the, exactly the point of this proposal, that you would at least get the information. You'd get the investigation going, uh, assuming that the professional staff thought one was warranted. And when all that information was assembled, it would come back to the commission. And then you would have the four-vote determination as to whether the law had been violated. But at least we'd have a record in front of us. So you make a lot of public statements and you do interviews as I said at the outset, and you have an active Twitter account, yes. which, I, which I enjoy. Thank you. And I'm wondering how how you conceive of your role as an FEC commissioner. You've come up on the radar screen of a, of a particular congressman, Representative Rodney Davis, who has complained about the kinds of statements you make, and you responded with a very strong statement of your own. It's a somewhat lengthy statement. It begins with the sentence, I will not be silenced. And I think it ends with the statement, I will not be silenced. How do you think about your public statements and and what do you make of people who say that you should keep your mouth shut a bit more because 
you are a public official, and in some ways, you're kind of like a judge who's going to come into consideration of enforcement matters, and it may present a conflict of some sort for you to be making statements outside of your official role. I think it's very much within my official role. And I don't make any statements about individual enforcement actions that are pending before the commission. What I talk about is the state of the law. I think that I have an important role in helping to explain the law, particularly when the commission is so gridlocked and can't do its job in the normal ways. I think that I am somebody who's pretty expert in the law and I have a um, a role in making sure that people understand where the limits are and where the lines are. What people complain about is they say, well, you should really, you should really not talk about anything that's in front of the commission because, which I don't, but you should also not talk about things that aren't in front of the commission because that's none of your business. That's out, outside of your wheelhouse. Again, it's called the Federal Election Commission. Everything I talk about is related to elections. I, I also talk about voting because that is the that is the way that elections happen. And uh, all of the information that we collect is collected for the express purpose of informing the voters. If voters can't vote, there's no point to anything that we do. And I've never been one to get bogged down in the trees and, and not see the forest. I've been working in the field of protecting the integrity of our of our government and our elections for my entire career. It's very important to me and making sure that everyone has the right to vote and can exercise that that right freely and fairly and equally. That's important to me. And I'm I'm not going to allow people who just don't like what I have to say to say, well, we don't like your opinion, so you don't get to say them. It is ironic that the people who most complain about my speaking claim to be strong First Amendment advocates. They're very strong advocates for the right of corporations to speak, not so much for me. But as I've said before, I'm not going to be silenced. I, I think that I have a platform here and that if that is the only way that I can help to move the ball forward is by making public statements, then that's, that's the route that I will choose. Let's talk about voting, because obviously that you mentioned it and it's top of mind for everyone. I think who cares about the country and about the election? My first question is, with respect to the FEC officially, does it have any role in how people vote or in protecting the right to vote? We don't have a formal role in that. As you know, the elections are administered at the at the state and local level. But it's something that you care about and it's something you have some expertise in. And since we're on the subject of your public statements, you you have taken the president to task a little bit because our president has made statements repeatedly about how mail-in balloting would be super fraudulent. I think mail-in voting is but horrible. You voted by it's mail corrupt. in Florida's election last month, didn't okay. you? Sure, I, I could vote by mail for the... How do you reconcile Because I'm that? allowed to. Well, that's called out of state. You know why I voted? Because I happen to be in the White House and I won't be able to go to Florida what to vote. But let me just say, well, there's a big difference between somebody that's out of state and does a ballot and everything sealed, certified, and everything else. You see what you have to do with the certifications. And you get... Thousands and thousands of people sitting in somebody's living room signing ballots all over the place. No, I think that mail-in voting is a terrible thing. I think if you vote, you should go. And even the concept of early voting is not the greatest because a lot of things happen. But it's okay. But you should go and you should vote. I think you should go and you should vote. You look at what they do where they grab thousands of mail-in ballots and they dump it. I'll tell you what. And I don't have to tell you, you can look at the statistics. There's a lot of dishonesty going along with mail-in voting, mail-in ballots. 
Back in May, he tweeted, there is no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. And I think at that time, and even more recently, you have contested that view. I don't believe in that view myself. And we've had other people on the show talk about that. On the 1st of July, you tweeted, quote, there are 125 days until election day. The earth is still round, and there is still no basis for the conspiracy theory that hashtag vote by mail would corrupt, will corrupt the election. You want to elaborate on, on why you're so confident that vote by mail is okay? Look, this is going to be a challenging election. I think everybody agrees on that. And basically, we have two options. We can vote by mail or we can vote in person. That's really the ball game. And what we're finding in this era of COVID-19, where people are strongly advised not to gather together in groups, particularly not in indoor settings, that voting in person is, is going to be problematic. For one thing, a lot of the people who are poll workers are older and in a high risk group. So the we've seen this throughout the primaries that the jurisdictions have to shut down polling places because they don't have enough staff. So there's been this real consolidation of polling places. It's been harder for people to vote in person. There are longer lines. Some uh, jurisdictions have handled this better than others, but uh, we have seen a lot of long lines and a lot of complaints about people who felt that that uh, in-person voting wasn't working very well or that they didn't feel safe doing it. So if in-person, if you're going to be shutting down polling places and, and limiting the right to vote in person, then the only other alternative is voting by mail. And people have done studies of this. There have been extensive studies of the risk of fraud, both in in-person voting and in vote by mail, and it just doesn't pan out. People are trying to whip up a uh, some kind of hysteria about this in order to make it harder for people to vote by mail and to discourage states from making it easier for people to vote by mail, particularly this year. But what we're seeing is a great demand by voters who say, we don't want to go stand in line and vote in person. We we need to have this option. And many states have made it more available this year. Really, many, many local state and local officials are trying to rise to the challenge and trying to make this available to people. But if we want to have an election, which, you know, the, the statutes say in the calendar I want to have an election, yes. We're going to have one this year, right? People need to be able to vote. And there's only two ways of doing it. So to stir people up and suggest that there's going to be fraud if people, more people vote by mail when no study has documented this. And people have looked into this. And even the people who are most adamant about the risk can only come up with a small number of cases over billions of votes taken over decades. So there really is no backup for this. And it's harmful to make people feel that the vote is not going to be fair, that they can't trust it. This is where there's a real risk here that we're destroying something that's very precious. I've spoken to a lot of groups that come in from developing democracies, and they're trying to learn how this whole democracy thing works. And one question that I get asked from time to time is, why do people trust the results? Why do people believe that when the results are announced that those are the accurate results? And the first time somebody asked me that, I was really taken aback because it had never occurred to me that people wouldn't trust the results. But once you undermine that basic faith that people have in their democratic institutions, that things are going to be done in a regular order and the votes will be counted properly and they'll be counted accurately and people will have access to exercise their choices in a free and fair manner. When you undermine the trust in that system, it is very hard to build back up. 
So I really feel that this is a very fraught time for our democracy, and I feel an obligation to stand up for truth and facts and to make sure that people understand what's real and what's not. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. On mail-in voting, what I really also don't understand is it may be the case that some people politically, for the president, for example, you want to make the case that mail-in voting is bad because you're trying to explain something away or cause doubt in the minds of people who are on your side. But is there any evidence that the interest in mail-in voting is stronger on the Democratic side or the Republican side? It would seem to me that that would be a nonpartisan issue also, and that there would be equal concern about uh, the coronavirus in some cases, but also an interest in having the ease of voting from your home. You know, studies show that there is no advantage to one party or the other from mail-in votes, that they they fall, you know, in roughly equal proportions for Democrats and for Republicans, that Democrats and, and Republicans are, are, at least historically, have been just as willing to use this. And it's particularly useful for older people and for people who live in more out-of-the-way places. You know, these are, these are places that are often Republican strongholds. So there is no reason to think that there's going to be a partisan advantage one way or another. There may well be more people who are unable to vote, but that's something that everyone ought to think is a good thing. That's how we have a government that is empowered by the consent of the governed. That's one of our our basic principles that the government derives from its authority from the consent of the governed. And if people can't vote, then they cannot exercise that consent. We live in a representative democracy. It is a stronger representative democracy. It is more representative when more people vote. So there's no reason for people to be afraid that this is going to have a partisan advantage. In fact, some Republicans have come out and said, hey, this is good for our people. So we should encourage this. And I don't really care whether people are Democrats or Republicans. I just think that every eligible citizen should be able to vote in a way that's accessible and and safe. Now, here's one consequence of massive mail-in voting that would take place in November, and you've written about this, and that is if you have, and we're seeing this in some primaries, we saw this in the New York primary, in which I voted a couple a couple of weeks ago, that there will necessarily be a delay, and if it's a closer election than not, then there will almost certainly be a delay before the winner can be announced. And you know we're pretty used to knowing who the winner of the presidential election is on the night of. You wrote a piece in the New York Times a couple of months ago with our friend and former podcast guest, Kevin Cruz, the historian, that's entitled, Take Some Deep Breaths and Prepare to Wait for Election Results. That's all well and good. Are you, are you worried, and maybe this is the reason you wrote it, are you worried that a delay in knowing whether Joe Biden has won or Donald Trump has won will cause further undermining in the faith of the election and, and conspiracy theories to thrive? That is definitely a concern. And uh, you're right. That is one of the reasons that we wrote it. 
I don't want people to feel that if they don't know on election night, it's because there's some nefarious activity going on. In fact, if they don't know on election night, it's because the election administrators are being very careful and they are making sure to count every vote and they want the vote to be accurate. That's a good thing. So it'll be frustrating. It'll be stressful. But as the uh, headline writer said, I didn't write the headline, but um, (laughs) we're we're all going to have to be patient and take a deep breath and try not to lose our minds (laughs) if we have to wait a little bit to find out who won. And and it may not just affect the, it may affect the presidency. It may also affect various other races. There are often races that are too close to call uh, and are not known immediately on election night. It's not that unusual. We are a little bit spoiled. We expect our, our newscasters to say, up, oh, the polls have closed and this is where this state went. But uh, well, we're very impatient. Well, we want to know. Yes, that's frustrating. But it's better to get an accurate count a few days later than to not count every vote. I mean, that's really what's critical. We want to make sure that every vote counts. What's the deadline under which we're operating for some states to switch to more extensive mail-in voting? Are we Are we about to have those deadlines expire? And so this will become an academic conversation soon? Well, I mean, it's not an academic conversation in that uh, there are many, many states that really are uh, trying to deal with this. There are not that many states that are fighting it. And most of the swing states, for people who are uh, interested in the horse race, uh, most of the swing states have gone to anybody can vote by mail if they if they make that request. But it does require preparation and it requires resources. The Brennan Center in New York has estimated that it could cost up to $4 billion for every state to get all of the equipment they would need and uh, to get up to speed and get their training done and, and do everything they would need to do in order to run a uh, fully uh, accessible vote by mail election. Uh, that's a lot of money. And obviously, the states and localities are suffering uh, in this economy like the businesses are and like individuals are. Uh, So where's that money going to come from? Well, it could come from Congress. Congress has appropriated $400 million, 400 million, I want to be clear on the consonants there. Right. Uh, it's, uh, It's not nearly enough. It's just not enough. And we should value our democracy enough to appropriate the funds to make sure that the states and localities have the resources to ensure that everybody can vote. Political ads especially on social media. So there's a lot of debate about that and a lot of anxiety about that. You've written about this also. And you have said, I believe that you don't think that political ads on social media should be banned. You have made an interesting proposal and suggested that what these social media platforms might think of doing is to bar what is called micro-targeting of small elements of the population. Explain what micro-targeting is and why you think that is a good idea to, to stop. So micro-targeting is when you're using your social media and they are just sucking all this data out of your uh, day-to-day interactions online. And these days, everybody's on their computer all the time anyway, so there's even more of that uh, kind of data available. Every time you like something, every time you share something, the AI is just collecting all that information and they use that to target ads to you. Now, when they're targeting ads for shoes, that's one thing. But if they're targeting ads for candidates, maybe that is something we ought to take a closer look at because some of those ads, they're very narrowly targeted to address your own set of biases. But the people who are not going to be quite in sync with the ads, they're not getting those ads. They're not even seeing that. 
So there's no counter speech. That's what our First Amendment relies upon, is that you don't like what somebody's saying, fine, you get out there and make a better argument. That only works if you can see or hear the argument that is being made. And these micro-targeted ads are going specifically to people to, uh, and they, they changed up for every person, basically, based on, on their own sets of biases as, as derived from all of the information that the platforms get out of you when you're not even thinking about it. And what I want to do is, is broaden the number of, of listeners, the, the number of readers for these ads, the number of observers, let, let more people into the conversation. Some people, anytime you talk about uh, anything that the platforms do, they jump immediately to saying, well, if the platforms impose any limits whatsoever, it's all censorship. Well, first of all, the First Amendment applies to government action. It doesn't apply to private sector action. But second of all, I'm not trying to stop people from saying anything. What I what I think would be better is if more people could see the arguments that are being made so that it would be easier for people to see when they thought arguments were misleading or were using facts in an inappropriate in a in a way that, that was misleading or amounted to disinformation, then they could respond to that in some intelligent fashion, and uh, and that we would have the kind of robust debate about ideas and politics and policies that the First Amendment thrives on and celebrates, rightfully so. So I think that the platforms would do us all a favor if they uh, would would share those ads more, more broadly and not have these kinds of very, very narrowly micro-targeted ads that, you know, basically nobody other than you is seeing the exact same things. Any reaction to that proposal from the social media folks? Well, um, Twitter decided it was just not going to do political ads altogether. They said, this is just too fraught. We're getting out of the game. Too much of a uh, headache. It's yeah. Just, it's just I, easier not to, not to be in it. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have a lot of political ads on their platform to begin with. So maybe it wasn't much of a sacrifice for them. Google has adopted something along the lines that I'm suggesting. They say they won't take ads that are micro-targeted below the level of zip code age and gender. So that sounds okay, except zip codes are about 8,000 people in a zip code. Uh, So then once you start slicing that up by age and gender, you still could be looking at a pretty narrow slice of the population who's looking at those ads. I think the the boundaries ought to be drawn a little broader than that. Facebook is uh, basically said, nope, nope, we're not going to do that at all. We we like our micro-targeting. That's our business model and we're going to stick with it. Can I ask a, a broad question, but it's a basic question that has a lot of people scratching their heads, and maybe it's it's a too complicated question to answer briefly. But why is it in 2020, in state after state after state, you see images of American citizens waiting in long, long, long lines to exercise their right to vote? We saw that in Georgia. We saw that in Kentucky. We see it all over the place. What, why is that? How is that tolerated? And how can it be fixed? And you have one minute. Well, it shouldn't be tolerated. It is intolerable. Nobody should have to wait more than half an hour to vote. And yet we see this. We see this in election after election. This year, it's particularly bad because, as I said, they don't have enough poll workers. So uh, I've seen some really uh, lovely well, initiatives. Is, is, some of it, is some of it deliberate? Is it all just sort of you know negligence and lack of resources? Or is some of it you know an attempt to suppress votes in certain places? Because that's what people think. Well, again, I don't want to try and get into anybody's heads, but I don't think you have to worry about the intent as so much as the effect. The effect seems to be that people who live in urban areas and frequently in communities of color uh, have longer lines. 
And there's been some studies of this that show that people in these communities wait on longer lines. That's unacceptable. It's just flat out unacceptable. And I think we need to get the resources together to uh, address this. It's going to be particularly difficult this year, as I said, because of the restriction in polling places due to the lack of poll workers. Um, I I am aware of at least one uh, very positive initiative by law students to uh, try and encourage uh, other law students to volunteer to be poll workers. Uh, We could rely on people uh, who have already demonstrated uh, the desire to volunteer for public service through the uh, AmeriCorps program. This year, uh, we brought home all of our Peace Corps volunteers. There were all of these wonderful, public-spirited, young, healthy people who were willing to travel all around the world to go to to uh, live in uh, in some places in, in very simple environments and give up creature comforts in order to be of service. And maybe those people who've now been brought home would like to volunteer to be poll workers. We could, you know, look to the National Guard. There's there's all sorts of populations that we could look to to encourage younger people, healthy people to volunteer to work in the polls. But we are we are going to need to have poll workers. We're also, by the way, on a slightly different topic, we're going to need to have a functional postal service if we're going to have all these people voting by mail. So, you know, that's another that's another problem that's looming out there that uh, we better make sure that the postal service is funded. Let's talk about an issue that has been there for a while. We referred to it earlier. We've talked about it on the show a number of times. The Supreme Court case of Citizens United from 2010. Just remind people what that case was about and the degree to which you believe it has affected money in American politics. Well, the impact has been huge, but it's not it's not so much in the in the uh, details of the case as in the effects of it. So uh, Citizens United uh, said that independent spending cannot be corrupting as a matter of law. There cannot be corruption in any form of independent spending. And that's why the coordination issue becomes so important, because if it's not really independent, if it's coordinated, then you've still got the same problem, even under current Supreme Court doctrine. This court needs no reminding that the government, when it is acting to prohibit, particularly when it is acting to criminalize speech that is at the very core of the First Amendment has a heavy burden to prove that there is a compelling governmental interest that judge, that justifies that prohibition and that the regulation adopted, in this case a criminal statute, is the most narrowly tailored necessary to accomplish that compelling governmental interest. Mr. Olson, are you taking the position that there is no difference In the First Amendment rights of an individual, a corporation, after all, is not endowed by its creator with inalienable rights. But independent spending can't be corrupting, according to the Supreme Court, and corporations have the same right to speak that human beings do, which is kind of interesting uh, as a concept. (laughs) Although they trace it back to the the people who are behind the corporations. They seem to be... um, more concerned with uh, dissenting views when it comes to labor unions than when it comes to corporations. Um, So if IBM decides it wants to spend a huge amount of money to elect Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anyone else, they can do that unfettered, so long as it's independent. They can do that as long as they're not coordinating with the candidates. 
But the result of this has been, so it is because independent spending cannot be corrupting that we, um, as a result of a, of a circuit court opinion that, that was a follow-on to Citizens United, that super PACs were created. They didn't used to exist before 2010, and now they've begin, become big, big players, and they are often funded by millionaire and billionaire donors who give lots and lots of money. A lot of people were concerned at the beginning that this was going to empower all the big corporations to swamp the um, political field. That's not actually what has happened as much. Corporations, particularly big publicly held corporations, they've got a lot of stakeholders. They have shareholders. They have boards of directors. They have customers. They have employees. So it's hard for them to take overt political positions because they're going to make somebody mad uh, in their group of stakeholders. And frequently- You see that in advertising. They have to be careful about how they advertise as well because they upset certain stakeholders. Right. So if they're going to spend money in politics, they tend to do it by giving to the Chamber of Commerce or some other um, lobbying organization, trade association. But what has happened is that it has, the results of Citizens United has been the super empowerment of this class of mega donors who spend millions and millions of dollars trying to influence who gets elected and then what gets enacted. And because these super PACs can pop up in individual races, it's exacerbated polarization of, uh, in Congress, I think, because Everybody is afraid of the primary in this, uh, particularly in gerrymandered districts or in states that are predominantly red or blue. Everybody's afraid of getting primaried. They're not so much afraid in the general election, perhaps, but they are afraid of getting a primary challenge by somebody who gets funded by big, big money on the outside. And it makes everybody just kind of hunkered down into the most extreme positions because there isn't any, there isn't a super PAC that's set up there to fund people who are willing to compromise and seek common ground. All of this big money is exacerbating the influence of the very wealthy who are already pretty influential, as well as driving polarization in Congress and making it harder for us to get things done in Washington at all. So I think the effects have been really negative. Uh, it's a very unpopular opinion. It's really out of sync with the way most people view money and politics. I mean, if you think about it, you can't give $3,000 to a candidate because that's considered to be inherently corrupting to uh, go over the contribution limits. And that would be illegal. But you can give $3 million to a super PAC that is get, doing nothing but trying to elect that same candidate. And the Supreme Court says, well, there's absolutely no risk of, of corruption. Nobody could possibly be corrupted by that $3 million contribution to ease their election, <laughs> right. as long as it doesn't go directly into their campaign committee. I think that just defies common sense. And people across the country get that. They get that, you know, whether they're Democrats or Republicans or independents, there's a a really strong sentiment against this opinion. And I think the Supreme Court is really just out of step with the way most people in this country think about corruption and think about the role of money in politics. Yeah, I think, you know, these are not quite parallel cases, but they're public corruption cases on which sometimes the Supreme Court rules 9-0, like with the former governor of Virginia. And I don't think they... You know, I hate to use this word and I have great respect for the court, but they're a little bit naive on the issue of how politicians can act corruptly and how easily they can get corrupted, (laughs) you know, and how much influence they can have over the governments they lead and employees they lead by defining out of the statute certain kinds of official action. So it's it's been of great frustration to, to prosecutors who are trying to clean up local government and obviously of great frustration to people who are trying to clean up politics as well. Is there anything short of a constitutional amendment that 
can be done by an agency or by Congress to mitigate what you believe are the bad effects of that decision? Well, I think there are a number of things that could be done that are consistent with that opinion. Uh, It would take a, a constitutional amendment or a different court to really address some of the worst aspects of it. But we could, consistent with Citizens United, we could improve disclosure. There's been almost a billion dollars in in dark money that has flooded our elections in the 10 years since Citizens United was issued by the court. And that doesn't need to be. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, it's one of those issues that the commission tends to deadlock on, but we could adopt stronger rules. The FEC could adopt stronger rules. Congress could adopt stronger statutes that would improve disclosure and make sure that at least people could follow the money in terms of, you know, who's really behind these organizations. So disclosure is completely consistent with Citizens United. I also, this is kind of a sleeper issue that doesn't get a lot of attention. I worry a lot about the potential for coercion when corporations are empowered to be uh, explicitly active in politics. Corporations don't actually have their own mouths. They have to work through people. And I worry about the potential for coercion of employees. And we've seen some cases where, again, we deadlocked at the commission, but I think this is a serious issue that could be addressed completely consistently with the rationale of Citizens United. Coordination, (laughs) we could do more to address coordination. Congress could do more to address coordination to really put some some teeth in in these rules you know we we have a situation now where the candidate can go and do fundraising for uh, the super PAC that is supposedly independent. They announce publicly what they uh, would like the super, what their favorite super PAC is, so their donors know where to go. They post video on their website so that the super PACs can take that video and run ads with really good, high quality pictures of the candidates. I mean, it's really gotten kind of silly. It's like those coordination rules are like Swiss cheese now, and and they haven't been they haven't been strengthened since Citizens United. And they weren't designed for this world. They were not designed for a world in which super PACs exist. So naturally, they're not doing a very good job of upholding the principles of independence. And another area that I think we really could do more is uh, in the area of blocking foreign national spending in our elections. We know our intelligence community has warned us that there are numerous foreign governments that are trying to get into our heads, spread disinformation, trying to foment chaos in our society and in our elections. And I believe we could do more about that than we are currently doing. And again, it would be completely consistent with the rationale of Citizens United. Do you have a view on the Electoral College? And have you had a chance to take a look at today's Supreme Court decision? I should note that we're recording on Monday, July 6th, and there was a 9-0 opinion authored by Justice Kagan about faithless electors. I have not had a chance to uh, to read that opinion yet. I'm, I'm aware of it, but I I, I just can saw I tell you like, what I'm can I tell you what I'm aware of? What I find sure. interesting because it dropped shortly before we started recording, and from social media, which is not the best way to get a good handle on a Supreme Court decision, but Justice Kagan was trending in part because in that opinion, which I have not read in full, she makes references to both Hamilton and Veep, which makes her the most popular justice in America today. <laughs> Well, I think uh, references to popular culture are uh, are a good way for the Supreme Court to try and help people understand uh, what they're trying to say. And references to Hamilton are always in order. More people will read at least those few paragraphs of a Supreme Court decision than would, than would have otherwise, because they want to see what they want to see what the jokes were. Well, now I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet <laughs> myself, but I'm really looking forward to it. But do you have a view on the Electoral College overall? 
That's a heavy um, sigh. Let the record yes. reflect that the, commi- <laughs> that the commissioner sighed very heavily. Big sigh. Um, I think it was designed in another world, in another era. And um, this is outside of my jurisdiction. There's nothing the FEC can do about this, but I do think that it is troubling to a lot of people when the popular vote and the electoral college vote diverge. And this is, again, a topic that people from other countries have asked me about. They really cannot wrap their mind around the electoral college. It's interesting that even though U.S. uh, citizens have gone around the world and tried to help developing democracies uh, set up rules, I don't think we have advocated that any other country set up an electoral college system. It's, um, It's fairly unique to us. And uh, I, I think that, again, because I worry about people's faith in their democracy and faith in their, uh, in their government, that it is just inevitable that people are going to feel that they are not being accurately represented when the popular vote and the electoral college vote diverge and the loser of the, uh, of the popular vote ends up Winning. We don't we don't do that anywhere else. We don't do that in state and local elections. And it's uh, it's hard to even imagine another contest where the rules would be set up in anything like that fashion. So can I ask you about something I, I mentioned earlier in the interview, Don McGahn, about whom you wrote a very critical op-ed when he was about to ascend to the position of White House counsel? And then, of course, being White House counsel to this president is a particularly I think, difficult job to have for a lot of reasons. And he became well-known, unlike a lot of White House counsels, to a lot of people in the country because he figures prominently in the Mueller report. Do you have any reaction to his conduct as described in the Mueller report? Were Were you gratified in any way that this person who you had some critical things to say about, at least according to the report, in some instances, resisted his boss's efforts to get him to do something that he thought was inappropriate? Well, I I never expected to see him in jail. I never expected that he would commit obstruction of justice and and go to jail. <laughs> I think he's much smarter than that. But he's much, have sm- a, he's much smarter than that. <laughs> not much, not much better than that. You said smarter than that. Well, I think it should be the 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 floor and not the ceiling that we would expect the White House counsel would not violate the law, would not commit obstruction of justice, would try and prevent, in fact, obstruction of justice. Some of us feel that way about the president himself. I. You don't have to comment. Yeah, I don't think I will. But, you know, McGahn was an obstruct, was a um, disruptor at the FEC. He, he wanted to uh, throw the table over and change all the, all the rules and, and break all the norms. So I wasn't really surprised to see him form an alliance with uh, a candidate who was known for being a disruptor as well. He may have found somebody who was an even more of a disruptive factor than, than he was. But like I said, I mean, the, the, I wasn't surprised or gratified to see a White House counsel not break the law. That really ought to be our baseline, not our not our aspiration. Commissioner Weintraub, thanks again for being on the show and for informing us and advising us on so many important issues, especially this year when we have an important election coming up. Everybody stay safe and don't forget to vote, but do it safely. My conversation with Ellen Weintraub continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Insiders get bonus stay tuned content, the exclusive weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, 
Now the United Security Podcast, co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, recordings of weekly notes by Ellie Honig and me, and more. To get a free two-week trial, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Hey folks, I hope you all had a good 4th of July. I think it's a special day. I've always celebrated it with my family, and I always intend to. As I tweeted on Independence Day, quote, I'm an immigrant who loves America and its promise more than I can describe. And I join every patriot who wants to make our country more just and fair and equal, and its promise available to all. Happy 4th. So it is true that July 4th is a day on which many Americans celebrate American freedom. But it's also worth thinking about some other things as well. On the day the Declaration was signed, this aspiring nation did not live up to the ideals embodied in the document. And so today I want to end with some important words from the past, from Frederick Douglass. After escaping slavery, abolitionist and writer Frederick Douglass gave a speech in Rochester, New York, on July 5th in 1852. It's entitled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Douglass, as you may know, authored several notable works and biographies, was an avid debater, and was unintentionally nominated as a vice president to presidential nominee Victoria Woodhull of the Equal Rights Party in 1872, though he declined the nomination. The two were outspoken suffrage activists. Douglas taught himself how to read and write at a young age, and he famously said that, quote, knowledge is the pathway from slavery to freedom, end quote. This year, on the 4th, five young descendants of Douglas recited his famous speech in a short film by NPR, which asks all Americans to consider the country's long history of denying equal rights to black people. One day later, on July 5th, 168 years after Frederick Douglass delivered that speech, a statue of him in Rochester was vandalized and ripped from the base it stood on in Maplewood Park. The park had once been a site along the Underground Railroad, where Douglass and Harriet Tubman had risked their lives to move enslaved people to freedom and safety. The statue was found destroyed about 50 feet away. No arrests have yet been made. In the years since Douglas first delivered his speech, the world has indeed changed dramatically. And yet from Frederick Douglass to George Floyd, racism in this country is still a problem and is still killing black Americans. So I want to leave you with an excerpt from the speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And I hope you'll take a moment to reflect on those words. Fellow citizens, pardon me, Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns 
Your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Frederick Douglass, 1852. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Ellen Weintraub, Lisa Monaco, and Ken Weinstein. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.